0: is The Glorious Death of Sin, Part 2, The Old Dead Man. Um, And I had hoped to get through Colossians 3, 5 through 11. Let me just read that real quick. And then um, I'll explain actually what we're going to do today. It says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge... According to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So I had hoped to get through the entirety of that passage until I actually started writing this week and thought there's no way i 'm going <laughs> to get through all of this. I think that base might be booming one of the one of the mics is kind of picking up some feedback is it the I think it's that one that's going down there They're all off Okay it stopped now it it stopped the booming stopped Maybe it's just my epic deep voice The steel plate in my head No I don't have a steel plate in my head <laughs> So anyway there's no way I'm going to get through all of that today so I updated the title. Hannah, you can put up the the title if you wouldn't mind. The second one. It's the glorious death of sin, part 2A. So, the old dead man. Next time I get to preach, which is August 6th, it'll be part B, part 2B of uh, the old dead man. So, we're just going to get through verses 5, 6, and 7 today. Um, And the last time we were together in Colossians, we were going through verses 1 to 4. And we talked about four new spiritual realities that, our, um, that are ours in Christ. And these realities are, are not apprehended by the five senses. They're, they're known and experienced in the here and now only in a spiritual sense. It's not to say that they're not real. Indeed, we will one day discover that they were the most real things that we had um, and the most valuable things that we had. And that first of the four spiritual realities that we talked about the last time I had a chance to preach was um, that we have a new quest. And that new quest is is a new mission from here on out. Now that we have come to know Jesus, if we're living rightly, we seek the things that are above. To seek the heavenly is to be the first aim of our lives. And when we become united with Christ in His death and resurrection, in other words, when we're converted when we hear and believe the gospel message of Christ's loving work here on this earth for us, we catch a glimpse of something more beautiful than anything else that we've seen on this earth. And our life's aim is to know more of that love of Jesus sent from heaven. The second spiritual reality we discussed from the the previous four verses is that we have a new home. And that home is where Christ is. Wherever Christ is. He's currently seated at the right hand of God. But our home is where Christ is. Augustine said, You have made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in You. Your new home is with Jesus, where He is. And you aren't at ease and at peace in an ultimate sense until you're there with Him. You're a sojourner. You're a pilgrim in this life looking to settle in a better land suited just for you and prepared just for you by Jesus Himself. It's a promised land. It's ours. And its magnificence is incomparable. There's no monument or landmark or wondrous destination or seven wonders of the world on this planet that will be anything remotely as wonderful as that new home that we have in heaven. And no family or any community here on this earth will be as welcoming and as loving and as strong and as stable as the community we have there with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the saints and the angels who await us there. That's our ultimate resting place. That's our ultimate home as Christians, where Christ is. The third spiritual reality we discussed was that we have a new mind. The new mind. And in hindsight, it might have been better to describe that point as a new mindset. It's the mindset of a free person. One no longer enslaved and controlled by the cruel master of sin. It's a a mind now under the new authority of Jesus Christ. A mind with new authority itself. Granted by Jesus. Granted by Jesus to overcome sin. To set our minds on things above. A whole new authority. Recall I used the analogy of a freed slave last time that hasn't realized the potential that their new freedom awards them. And I indicated that many of us don't realize the potential that we have in Christ to set our minds on the things above and to overcome sin. And we're going to talk about that more deeply today. But the final spiritual reality from the first four verses that we discussed is our new life. Verse 4 describes it as Christ who is our life. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Galatians 2.20 says the same thing in a very similar way. I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Jesus is our life. None of these new spiritual realities exist apart from Him. None of us will ever know this new quest, this new home, this new mind apart from Him. But when we come in faith to Jesus, believing in the gospel message, baptized by His Spirit into Him, which is signified in the waters of baptism, all of these spiritual promises become realities for us and all of this life comes to us through Jesus. Now these four realities that I said before are spiritual and spiritually apprehended. The fullness of these things hasn't been revealed yet and that's what verse 4 was alluding to. At an appointed time in the future Christ is returning and these realities that are spiritually apprehended through faith right now will be gloriously seen And understood by all. But that doesn't mean that there isn't evidence in the here and now that these spiritual realities exist and that the gospel is true. There is evidence and the greatest evidence is that of a transformed life. The transformed life of the believer is the greatest evidence that the gospel is true. The theological word used in Scripture for this transformed life is sanctification. Though it's not used here in Colossians, it's precisely what Colossians is referring to. In a passage from Romans that's dealing with the exact same subject matter of victory over sin, Paul says this. He says, Now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification. And the outcome eternal life. That's in Romans 6 verse 22. And that's what we're getting into today, the transformed or the sanctified life. So for all you note takers, here's our path forward for today. Today's outline, um, it's shortened because I was hoping to get through a lot more today, but it, it didn't. There are two sides to the sanctification coin. If you think of it as a coin, if there's a heads and a tails, one side of the sanctification coin is that there is sin to kill. There is sin to kill. And Paul provides us with two categories of sin that we need to kill as Christians. In verse 5, he mentions a group of sensual sins. In verses 8 and 9, he mentions a group of social skins, or sins, <laughs> social skins, social sins. I think I'm playing Minecraft or something like that. In <coughs> new skins on a game. Um there's also a sixth one that we'll get to. We're not going to get to the social sins today. We're just going to talk about the sensual sins. Um, but we are also going to get through verses six and, 6 and 7, which describe and talk about the reasons that these sensual sins must be killed. Okay? So that's what we're going to talk about today. Pretty simple. We're going to talk about the five sensual sins, and we're going to talk about the reasons why they need to be killed from the text. So as we go forward, let me open in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the treasure that is your word. I thank you, Father, that it is um, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and that it's able to penetrate deep into our lives so deep, Lord Jesus, that um, it profoundly changes us from the inside out. And Father, I pray that your word would do that this morning as we ponder deeply just these three verses. Verse 5, 6, and 7 in Colossians 3. I pray, Lord Jesus, that your word would dig deep into our souls and change us. And Father, if we um, are feeling like uh, the lyrics to that last song that we sang, like failures, ones who have uh, struggled and fallen again and again and again in the same patterns of sin, I pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see beyond the veil. And Jesus, that you would give us um, eyes to see the rich promises that your word offers to us. The hope that it gives to us, Lord, and holds out to us as believers in Christ of the victory that we can have even in the here and now. And I pray, God, that you would help us to believe afresh the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And I pray this in his name. Amen. So the transformed life. You know, we use a lot of internal jargon oftentimes as Christians, and words most all of us understand, especially if we've been around for a while, but we forget pretty easily that some who haven't been around uh, may not understand what we're talking about. And sanctification is one of those great words that we appreciate as Christians, but If someone's not super familiar with our lingo, it can make that person's eyes glaze over when uh, we talk about things like that. What is sanctification? We often define it as the process a Christian goes through over the course of their life. From the conversion when they met Jesus to they're going to be with Jesus, whether he calls them up in a rapture or they die and go to meet him after this death, after the death of this life. But it's that process over the course of their life of growing in holiness. But even that definition includes another word that you've got to unpack. What does holiness mean? And uh, we've got to explain that as well. And I find it interesting that here in Colossians, Paul doesn't use the word sanctification, even though that's clearly what he's talking about. He doesn't use the word, and I don't know why he doesn't, but he doesn't. But he is immensely clear in defining and describing the transformed life the sanctified life. He's very practical here. He says the word therefore at the beginning of verse 5. And that points us back to what he just said in verse 4. Which is that there's this glorious revealing that's going to take place when Jesus comes back. And because of that imminent future event that we as Christians look forward to with hope, something concrete needs to happen in the way that we, our, we live our lives right now. And the next word he uses is a very strong one to describe what that concrete action is that needs to take place. It's the Greek word nekral. Nekral. It's the first side of the sanctification coin. An important aspect of being transformed or the sanctified life, it's a life of dying to something. And that's what that word means. It means Death. It's the word that produces our words in English like necromancy, which is the occult practice of communing with the dead. don't know why I picked that word to, to highlight what it means in English, but you know it's the first one that popped into my head, so I put it down. But it says in the, in the New American Standard Bible, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. And this is very strong and violent imagery. The ESV renders verse 5 as put to death therefore what is earthly in you. The King James Version uses a great old English word, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. He's saying something very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 29 to 30, where Jesus said, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So what's being taught by Jesus in that passage, and by extension Paul here in Colossians, was not a literal amputation of the parts of the physical body that are used for sinning. This mention of of earthly bodies here in Colossians 3 verse 5 connects us back to the context A few verses back in verse 2 where Paul told the Colossians to set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Hence the connection with earthly bodies. So what Paul is describing is the appropriate mindset of the believer in this verse. The amputation that needs to happen is in our minds. The mindset on things above and not on the earth considers its earthly body as dead to sin. That word consider is important, I think, in conveying what Paul means. Romans 6, 8 through 11 says this, Now if you have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. But alive to God in Christ Jesus. Again, what Paul is describing here is a mindset, a considering of ourselves. God sees you as dead to sin and alive to himself because of your faith in Jesus. He sees you this way. Trust that and see the same thing that God sees. Trust that and see the same thing that God sees. This is hard for us to fathom. Because every time we slip and fall into sin, our first thought is, I'm done. God is done with me. God won't have me. I'm too sinful. I'm too dirty. I'm such a failure. I've blown it way too many times. I'm not worthy. Maybe I'm not even a Christian. Maybe I'm just deceiving myself. Have you ever thought that way? As you struggle with sin and wrestle with it in your own life? I know i felt that way. Oh, how you need to understand the grace of God again. Don't you know how He loves you? Don't you see that you have God's favor? And it's unmerited. That's what grace means. It's not because you deserve it, but because you went with His Son to the cross and to the grave. Because you were raised up with him. When you placed your trust in Jesus, God the Father stopped seeing your sin. And he now looks at you and he sees the righteousness of his sinless son. If God considers you righteous, then you need to consider yourself dead to sin. Brothers and sisters, this truth seems so amazingly good that we find it hard to believe. And we can easily forget that it is true. When we begin to live in the defeated mentality that we had before we heard the gospel and believed it at first, can it be that God loves me to this degree? It can be. It's actually so. That's what your Bible teaches you. That's what he's saying here. This truth understood and embraced opens our eyes And it it reorients our thinking so that we begin to have a taste and a desire for the things of heaven and we begin to lose our appetite for those things in this list of sin that Paul follows up here with in verses 5 and in verses 8 and 9. We start to see those things as disgusting and we develop a hatred for them as we develop a love and an appetite for the things of heaven. Paul gives us a list of Two sins, again, two categories of five each. And the first list we'll call the sensual sins in verse 5. And the list begins with the act, the act of the sin, and then moves to the mental state behind the act. The second list, which we'll get to later when I get a chance to preach again, we can call that one the social sins. And that list moves in reverse order. It moves from the motive or the mental state, to the behaviors that the mental state produces. So the first list of five, the sensual sins. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed. Let's go to that first one, immorality. That's the word in the Greek, porneia, where our English word pornography comes from. And it's a very broad term covering all sexual sin. Pornography derives from The word, our English word, pornography, derives from the word graphe, which means to write. So pornography is writing or images or pictures of sexual sin. That's what it is. Some translate the Greek word as fornication, such as the King James Version. 1 Corinthians 6.18 tells Christians that they are to flee from sexual immorality. In other words, run away because you're in danger if sexual immorality is close by. This word heads, this word pornea or fornication or, or immorality heads the similar lists of, of of lists of sins and the sinful nature that are found in Galatians five nineteen and in Ephesians five three, and the Bible strictly forbids any sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman, and within this context though, sex is celebrated, it's encouraged, it's enjoyed. God created sex and the desire for it. It is, in its appropriate context, it's good. And there's nothing at all about it to be ashamed of. And I say, thank you, Lord, for that. But outside of that context, it's porneia. It's fornication or immorality. And God takes it very seriously. The second one in that list is impurity. And that comes from the Greek word akatharsia which is where we get our word catharsis or cleansing. That's where that comes from. And the ah in front of it uh, in the Greek makes it the opposite. So it means unclean or impure. Coupled with with porneia, this refers to a dirty mind and a lifestyle, nastiness. Passion and evil desire. These terms relate to disordered and strong lusts. Or desires, a desire for what is forbidden. And the the word evil in the Greek means of a bad nature. There are certain desires that are associated with a bad, sinful nature that must be put to death in the life of a Christian. The desire itself needs to be put to death. Not just the behavior, but the desire. There's a lot of folks that want to want to give a pass to certain categories of sinfulness as long as they just stay in the mind as a desire as an inordinate desire. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that it needs to be attacked and killed at the level of the desire, at the level of the mind. All of these four that I've mentioned so far are in some way related to sexual sinfulness. And remember what Paul is writing to Christians. He's writing to a church. Now, the the Jewish ethic of the Old Testament that some of these early Christians had was in agreement with this emphasis on a transformed, purified sexual ethic. But many of the believers that Paul wrote to, especially in Colossians here, did not share this value at all in their upbringing. Their cultures and the way that they were raised as children were anything but sexually pure. Paul makes mention of this category of sinfulness, though, in, in just about every one of his letters. So, it would seem that even those who had united themselves to Christ in the early church still struggled to maintain obedience to God's righteous call upon their lives in this category. So, on one hand, take heart if you struggle. If you continue in your struggle to maintain sexual purity, it's not as if you are some outlier or some freak whose conversion didn't stick. You're in the company of many many others throughout the ages that have battled this temptation. But, there's a more important way that you need to take heart. Take heart in the fact that Paul wrote this letter and many other letters in such a way so as to convey that one born of God can have the expectation of victory over these sins. Do you hear that? Paul writes in such a way that conveys you can expect to have victory over these sins in your life. Do you believe that? Again, realize your potential, the potential of your new freedom that you have in Christ. And sadly, many Christians do not engage in the ongoing active killing of these sins in their lives. Romans 13, 14 says this, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Unfortunately, we as Christians leave a little provision for the flesh all too often. All over the place, in fact, in our lives. Many years ago, uh, when I first began working for my previous employer, I worked with a a young girl, uh, sat next to her, um, a Christian girl who was just getting married. And her and I were friends, We would have good conversations. And one of the ladies from her church, though, because she was getting ready to get married, was going to throw her a party that she kept calling a fun party. But it meant more than just a fun party. If I recall correctly, that's what they called it. And the lady that was throwing this party was a multi-level marketing person, similar to like, I don't know, what is it, Pampered Chef or something like that. For this company, and this company branded itself as a, a wholesome seller of sexual toys and garments, etc., for married couples. Right? It's wholesome. It's for married couples. Eh, eh. And she gave my coworker a catalog to look at these things that were going to be offered for sale at the party, and she brought it into work. <laughs> Very awkward, and shared it with all the ladies on the floor. Um, and they would take a break from their work desks, and they would come over to my coworker's desk, and they would look through the catalog, and they would come across something, and then they would giggle mischievously, and uh, and then they would whisper things to each other and laugh. Not much work was getting done when that catalog was on that desk. <laughs> and this girl was known to be a Christian. She let it be known, rightly so. And most of those who came over to look through this catalog were not Christians. This was her witness to these ladies. And here I am, the dude, sitting, <laughs> sitting right in the middle of all of these conversations, very awkward. And at one point, after the crowd dispersed, I guess, uh, she asked me, do I want to take this catalog home to Mandy? And I said very abruptly, no way. No, I, I don't want to have anything to do with it. And I said it in such a way that she sensed my displeasure at the whole thing. And so she asked me why I thought this was wrong. And my response to her was that purchasing these types of items from this company was feeding the same beast behind the industry that produces pornography, sex workers, voyeurism, prostitution, abortion, pedophilia, and human and child sex trafficking. How could I dare do that as a Christian? My coworker didn't say much after that, but she had to acknowledge that I was right. It's just an appendage of the same beast. The catalog went away, if I recall correctly, which I was glad of. Guys, we're supposed to actively kill these things. Actively kill. That's what. That's what the the voice of the verb is to put to death. That's translated to put to death. We're supposed to actively kill these things. We're supposed to be on the offense against these things in an ongoing way. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And that is so true. But how do we kill it? Well, we stop making provision for it. In other words, we stop nourishing and feeding it. That's what making provision for something is. Nourishing and feeding it. We starve it to death. We starve it in our own minds and hearts by cutting off the supply of images and literature and music, etc. that comes to us from our phones, our books, our magazines, our Kindles, our computers, our TV screens. You literally kill those things. Those things you literally cut off most of you guys have been to our house. I think, or at least a good number of you have been, been to our house. And we don't have a TV in the upstairs living room of our house. And the, the TV that we do have in the basement, it's just for DVDs and, vid- and video games. We don't subscribe to any online streaming services. No Netflix, no Disney Plus, no Amazon Prime, no Hulu, no cable. I don't want easy access to that stuff. It ensnared me for far too long. Because there is impurity on all of those streaming services. All sorts of impurity on those things. Even Disney is overtly grooming kids into perverse sexual immorality. And it's clearer and clearer every day that that's what's going on. I don't own a device in our house that's not protected by accountability software that sends routine reports to an accountability partner that shows what I've been looking at and searching for on whatever device I and my kids are on. And I gave them a heads up that this week's activity might throw up a red flag because some of the things I researched on this, uh, I promise I I didn't go looking for inappropriate things. The sensitivity of the software, though, is pretty high, and it should be. And the subject matter of this sermon is a red flag to those things. But the other way we starve this beast of pornography or immorality is to starve the purveyors of pornography. And that's also a big part of why I don't want to spend money on these subscription services to any of them. Sadly, Christians are a big share of the market for pornography in our times. We give lip service to the evils of sexual immorality, but all too often we leave a little provision here for it and a little provision there for it. And we don't go on the offense against the beast and we excuse a little bit here and a little bit there when we allow ourselves to be entertained by content that is sexually immoral. And this has to stop, guys. This has to stop. When you think about it, we leave a little bit of food on the table in a lot of ways for sexual immorality. We may stay away from things with out and out nudity and sex scenes, but how many shows do you watch that include homosexual couples or sexual humor? Or men and women living together that are not married. Or that have adulterous themes or, or senseless violence or programming that glorifies the dishonest and the, the thief. And I get it. There's not much content out there that doesn't have something like that in there. There's not much in the way of wholesome entertainment out there. There's a growing library of it that's coming, which is a good thing, I think. And it's ubiquitous, guys. It's literally everywhere. But when we really think it through, isn't our infatuation with entertainment itself an earthly pursuit? Isn't so much of it a distraction from our seeking the things that are above? I actually think we do really well to cut off a whole lot of the media that we consume altogether. And I'm speaking to myself and members of my own family here as much as anybody. Our media and entertainment-saturated culture that we live in is doing everything it can to keep us from setting our minds on the things above. And if we can cut the cord, so to speak, to a lot of these things, we may find more room for heaven in our minds. So that last word in the list of five that Paul includes is greed. And this is the word pleonexia, which just means the love of more. The love of more. And it's included in this list by Paul because truly the root of sexual immorality is greed. It's the insatiable desire for more sex. Some versions translate this word as covetousness, which is the final of the Ten Commandments. But Paul includes this little modifying phrase for greed. He says, it amounts to idolatry. And this indicates that the 10th commandment is just a form of breaking the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before you, and you shall not make for yourself an idol. Exodus chapter 20 verses 3 to 4. Some have said that coveting or greed is the root of all other sins. William Barclay called it a sin with a very wide range. If it's the desire for money, it leads to theft. If it's the desire for prestige, it leads to evil ambition. If it's the desire for power, it leads to sadistic tyranny. If it is the desire for a person, it leads to sexual sin. Covetousness or greed is linked with sexual sin elsewhere in the Bible as well. Ephesians 5.3, immorality, any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Back in Acts chapter 15 when the, 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 the church leaders in Jerusalem met and had a council about how do we handle these Gentile believers? What do we do? Acts chapter 15, it imposed restraints upon the Gentile people who became Christians And the same two categories of sins that were included in that Acts 15 passage are these, sexual immorality and idolatry. You can go back and read it. It's in Acts 15 covetousness or greed is a very private and insidious little thing you can gain success and victory over all sorts of sin and leave a little bit of greed behind because it's not easy to see all of the time it's like when you finish weeding your flower bed at home and within a week it looks like you haven't weeded it at all because the weeds have all come back greed is this little invisible seed that will germinate into greater sins I'll just share the experience of my own life, if you don't mind. Greed pops up in my own heart when I've gained victory in other areas. And I noticed this pattern a number of years ago as I was gaining victory over lust and pornography. I would find myself excusing the lust for more money. And I was okay with it because it felt like a less serious sin. In fact, if I'm honest, I treated this sin as being a net positive because it provided a distraction or a replacement from the more damaging sin of pornography, I thought. It was just daydreaming, after all, about having more stuff and more money. It's harmless, right? Well, it eventually led to me thinking about money for a good chunk of the day. And I put together spreadsheets of all the investment accounts I would have in this dream world. And I had a spreadsheet called Pipe Dream on my computer. I kid you not. I ended up going to the store and buying Powerball and Mega Millions tickets. And I had never done this before. I'd never done this before. I had always thought the lottery was wrong in principle. And the reason is, is because it only exists because of people's greed and also this common human tendency to treat work as a necessary evil instead of the inherent good that God made it to be. There's no problem with associating work and money if you believe that work is a good thing. The money is just a blessing. But we have this tendency in our society to basically treat work as a necessary evil. And years ago, I actually confessed this to the guys on the men's retreat some years back. That I had been living uncharacteristic of how an elder should live because I harbored the love of money in my heart. And greed of this nature still pops up from time to time in my heart. And i got to confess it and war against it in an ongoing way and put it to death. Just being observant of my own tendencies, I'll tell you, I struggle with this most when I'm driving on vacation. And this this might ring true in your own mind, I don't know, but the drive for me is a huge part of what's enjoyable on the vacation. I, I love the journey, and I just love driving. But you think about it, just as a little aside, vacations, if if we're really honest, if we think about it, aren't they sort of in a special way times when we enjoy and focus on the pleasures of this world? Not necessarily in a bad way. I'm not condemning taking a vacation. Please don't hear that. I know I've, I've come down hard on a lot of things this morning. Please don't take from this sermon that Eric said, I can't watch TV, I can't play video games, I can't be on social media, I can't have money, I can't think about money. I can't go on vacation. I love church. (laughs) Right? Hear me, please. I am not condemning these things. I enjoy these things as much as the next person. I'm just seeking to be honest with myself and with you that these things are each and every one little gateways to setting our minds on the things of earth. Aren't they? Aren't they? little gateways to setting our minds on the things of earth, and they can distract us from our new quest of seeking the things that are above. So back to vacation. This is how I stumble when I'm on vacation and the drive. When I'm driving on vacation, these greedy thoughts about having lots of money pop back up into my head sometimes. I'll see a lottery billboard. And I notice this happens a lot of times on the way home from vacation because I've just had a whole week of enjoying a prolonged amount of leisure time in a fancy place and eating foods that are fancier than I normally eat. And so I'm in love with the world after vacation, you know? Um, But I'll see a lottery billboard and I'll begin to thinking about having massive amounts of money in the bank. And then I'll daydream about having a nicer minivan. And uh, I kid you not, I do daydream about having a nicer minivan. I daydream about a, a brand new Hunter Green Toyota Sienna hybrid XLE with eight leather seats and the entertainment package. I'm just kidding. I actually don't envision the entertainment package because I don't care about that. I can't watch it anyway. Um, here's another thing that causes me to struggle with, with greed. When my friends, my musician friends get new instruments, I get a little covetous. I'm not going to lie. Rachel just recently got a new tailor. And it's very fun to play. Doug just recently got a, a new guild 12 string. And he let me have it in the, my office all week and so I've been playing that thing all week and I'm like I'm, I'm just going to confess I probably spent way more than an hour this week looking online for guild guitars so I probably won't end up buying one but these are these are where you know the love of earthly things kind of pop back into it thanks a lot Doug and, and Rachel for making me sin um, anyway let me move on let me move on so Paul moves on in verses uh, 6 and 7 to the reason that these things need to be killed. Here's why they need to be killed. The first reason that the remnants of these sins that must be killed is this in verse 6. God's wrath is coming. It's coming. Paul had just told the Colossians in verse 4 that the thing that they had to look forward to was the glorious revealing of their new resurrected life. That, the, that is that life that is hidden from view right now. But it will be seen when Christ returns. But the other side of that return of Christ is punishing wrath. And this is the coming of wrath for the sons of disobedience. And if this is the case, then those who have died and been raised with Christ ought to look very different than those who are drawing the wrath of God upon this earth. Romans 1.18 says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. God takes the wickedness of mankind, as exemplified in this list of five sensual sins, very seriously. Those whose lives are characterized as disobedient to God will suffer his wrath for all eternity. This is not undue strictness on God's part, nor is it hateful on God's part. It's not cruelty. God's wrath is necessary and good. It's an extension of his loving kindness. God's wrath is an extension of his loving kindness. Do you hear that? Let me explain how. Yesterday afternoon, I planned for the last part of my sermon prep to be to go and see the movie The Sound of Freedom. Have any of you gone to see that movie yet? I would encourage all of you to see it. I don't normally go and see movies at the theater, but I felt this one was one that was worthy of support. I want to put my dollars behind this. And the movie is purported to be based on true events involving child trafficking in South and Central America, and it's very well done. The subject matter is extremely heavy and sad. But it ends with a hopeful resolution. I'll give you that. But sadly, the movie doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of the cruelty and torture and exploitation and molestation that is suffered by so many little kids who are trafficked. But one of the redeeming qualities of this movie was that it showed the bad guys, the pedophiles and the traffickers getting caught and stopped. And at least some kids got rescued. And if you're anything like me and you see this movie, you sense a rage welling up inside of you as it gets up and close, up close and personal with the bad guys. And you get to cl- catch a glimpse of, of just how evil what they do is. And I found myself so overjoyed when they were apprehended, I can't even describe it to you. I found myself wishing for the death penalty for those who perpetrate these acts against little kids. Wrath was a mercy to those innocents who were taken and trafficked. The kindest character in that whole story was the one doling out the wrath. When he put the wrath of the law on those pedophiles. And the same will be true on the day when Jesus returns when he pours out his wrath on the sons of disobedience. God's wrath is a mercy. The second reason Paul gives for why this, these remnants of sin must be put to death is in verse 7. He says, in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Christians should be putting sin to death because it represents what we were in our old life. That life of sin that died and was crucified with Christ. It was that life of sin that contributed to the need for Jesus to give his own life. It was that sin which used to enslave you and me that drove the nails into Christ's hands and feet. You used to be controlled by the beast of sin. But remember back in Colossians 1.13 where Paul says he rescued us from the domain of darkness. And he transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. You don't live there anymore. Stop acting like you do. Recall earlier I mentioned to you my co-worker about the products that she was selling at this at this fun party. That when Christians support these things, they feed the same beast that devours the innocence. The same industry that produces pornography and objectifies and dehumanizes women, that leads a person ensnared into it or ensnared by it into darker and darker forms of sexual depravity, a depravity that ultimately creates the market that traffics in little children for the perverse desires of monstrous people. When you flirt with your old life, you throw handfuls of food to that beast and you keep him ever powerful and destructive. Do you hear that? And not just powerful in relation to you, but in relation to others as well. It's not just a private matter. It feeds the beast that devours many. That's not who you are anymore, Paul says. That's how you used to walk. That's how you used to live. And remember, that image of walking refers to a manner of life or a pattern of living. When you came to Christ, that pattern was broken, that life died. And your new life is hidden with Christ. Back in verse 3. Learn to walk in the newness of that life. Paul indicates you can. And I know some of you struggle with seeing the old man as dead. I struggle too. But Paul saw that the Colossians struggled with this too. And he taught them And he teaches us today and encourages us the same way that it's clear he believed those old strongholds of sexual immorality and impurity and lust and greed, they can and they will be broken. Do you believe it? If you do, shout amen. Amen. The old man really is dead. Do you believe it? It's my heart's desire that you believe this truth spoken by Paul with every fiber of your being. Live in the promise of victory and freedom. Realize the potential of your new life in Christ and get on with the work of killing sin. John Owen said, set your faith at work on Christ for the killing of your sin. His blood is the great sovereign remedy for the sin-sick souls. Live in this and you will die a conqueror. Yea, you will, through the good providence of God, live to see your sin dead at your feet. So the next time I have opportunity to preach, we'll discuss the social sins that follow in the text. And we'll see, we'll see how far we get in chapter 3 at that point. I don't have any idea how long well it's going to be. So I thought this was going to be a four-part sermon series, but it could be longer than that. We'll eventually get to part three of the Glorious Death of Sin series where we discuss the positive, adopted attributes of the new risen man. But I've said enough for now, so let's pray. Father in heaven, I come before you this morning so thankful for your word. So thankful, Lord Jesus, that um, oftentimes I know when I read through the Bible, I feel like I'm reading about heroes who are paragons of virtue and righteousness and Holiness And God, um, when we open the Bible, we see a book of people who fail, just like us. And Father, um, I thank you, Lord, that that keeps me from utter despair. But Father, help me to see the other side of that. The reason that you had so much written on this subject is because you knew we would need many reminders that this is true, that we can actually have victory in a very real sense, over sin in our lives. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to leave here today with the new mission, intent to kill the sin that remains in our life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stand, if you will, for the benediction. It comes from Romans 8, verses 13 to 14. If by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God These are sons of God. Those of you who have placed your trust in our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ are sons and daughters of God. And no son or daughter of God remains defeated and controlled by sin. Depart in that assurance and in peace as you're led by the Spirit to put your sin to death. Amen.